I want to revisit a passage this morning that I've read over the past 50 years, I guess, or more, many, many times. And yet, when I restudy, look into a passage of Scripture, it becomes strengthening, and often there are things that I did not see and comprehend. There's no book like this one, like the Word of the Living God. I want to turn you this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of this resurrection chapter. But we'll be looking and taking our text from verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this day, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not me to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found witness, uh, false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not, uh, raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The gospel, meaning the good news, the grand truth of salvation, 
being delivered from the greatest evil, from sin, reconciled to God. The gospel that God gives, the grace that saves by grace alone, faith in Christ alone, is founded and rests upon the grand truth of the actual bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that he actually came out of the grave. The resurrection declares him to be who he claimed to be, the divine son of the living God, even as Paul wrote to the Romans, and he says to them that he is declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It declares him to be Lord, sovereign, over all things in truth. As in Romans 14, 9, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and living. The death of Christ, as you can perceive when you read his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, was first for the glory of God, then for his rule over all and his salvation of those the Father gave him. And so his glory, his rule, his reign is a first priority in his resurrection. And it's not just the historical fact as firmly as the resurrection is evidenced. There is nothing in the history of the world more firmly evidenced than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later we shall consider some of those many infallible proofs as we're taught in Scripture. But it's not just the historical fact or the intellectual acknowledgement of the historical fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith in the Christ who now reigns. It's faith in the one who now lives. The one who, though at the right hand of the majesty on high, God the Father, yet also this one is with us. By virtue of his divine nature and his omnipresence, he's with us. He can promise, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So we trust in the living Lord. We trust in the reigning Savior. The word is nigh thee, even in thy heart, in thy mouth. That is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Those who call upon him in faith, those who trust him in truth, do so because they have a conscious realization that he lives that he is alive, that thus all of his claims and all that is written in Scripture concerning him is absolutely true. All of the incredible prophecies that fit together perfectly 
and come to be fulfilled in him, wondrous as they are to our eyes. We look to him, we trust in him, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But in this chapter, as we concern ourselves more with the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is correcting a very serious error that some had embraced at Corinth. Obviously, it was pressed upon them. It was a denial of the resurrection of the body to come. It was a denial that the body itself would be raised from the dead. But what's very strange about this is that they did not deny the resurrection of Christ. They believed it, as Paul said. They believed that he was risen from the dead. And that may sound very strange. The resurrection of Christ was absolutely so firm in proof, infallible proof, that even those who were denying the believer's future resurrection yet embraced the truth of the Lord's resurrection. as in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? The Corinthians had come under a very subtle teaching. This teaching denied the future bodily resurrection of believers, which Paul, of course, at length undertakes to correct in this chapter, making known very clearly to them the logic that if there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen from the dead, your faith is vain. He mentioned that to begin with when he opened this chapter. The apostle goes on to show that the raising of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is the absolute guarantee that all who die in the Lord shall be raised in the glorious resurrection day to come. So in verses 19 and 20, if in this life only, we have hope in Christ. We're all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now, when Paul speaks of the first fruits of them that slept, that requires some knowledge of what is taught in the Old Testament, of course. He's drawing there from something that was taught in the Old Testament scriptures, a prophecy, a prophecy that was given in picture. In the Old Testament, all things pointed to the coming of Messiah, Christ, the promised one. And the prophecies of the Old Testament were given not only verbally, they were given in pictures, sometimes in symbols, sometimes in actions, sometimes in persons whose life prefigured that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the apostle here speaks of the first fruits we have to understand that the children of Israel were to bring the first fruits of a new harvest. The first fruits that guaranteed something. The first fruits were the guarantee that the harvest would follow. 
The priests then were to offer what was called a wave offering in the tabernacle and in the temple. And I want to show you something. It's in Leviticus chapter 23 and in verses 10 and 11. Third book in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 23. And in verses 10 and 11. And here Moses writes, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall raise it. Even in that type, it was to be offered the day after the Sabbath. The day after the Sabbath is the first day of the week. And so that we have many pictures in the Old Testament. Nothing explainable, but this is God's truth given by him all having its wondrous fulfillment in the person of our blessed lord and i think at this time of year i love the springtime don't you you know the dead of winter has passed things began to spring forth that's why we call it spring right um, sometimes right out of the ground as it were out of the death of of the winter and here comes fruition out of the ground and uh, then we can look around we can see the green we can see the trees we can we can be thankful for the shrubs we can watch the openings of the flowers and recognize well we know the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley we see a parable in nature at this time of year at this time of year is the Passover we don't know what time of year the Lord was born we don't know, but we know that it was at the Passover when the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed. So it was this time of year when things began to spring forth. It is, as it were, a parable that God puts in nature, the miracle of these beauties, even in creation, so that we can read in every opening bud, in every beautiful blossom, a joyous confirmation of the hope-filled prophecy of the glory that awaits us who are in Christ. The resurrection is here in the foundational truths of the gospel of the Son of God. So in verses 3 and 4, the apostle writes, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, when the apostle here writes, first of all, he reminds us of the great foundational truths upon which our salvation rests. First of all. Now, it's not simply, again, 
the acknowledgement of the historical facts that is saving. It's not simply the facts. It's the one who fulfilled the facts. That Savior. The risen. The living Christ. We're called to trust our very selves to him. Just as this one who wrote this passage under the work of God's Holy Spirit is himself a tremendous proof of the resurrection. And he says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Yet the actual historical events that Christ actually died on a Roman cross, that he actually rose again from the dead, are at the very base of the gospel itself. If you please, it is the soil. It is the soil from which all of the deep meaning of the gospel blossoms forth to us. The unending treasure of the divine purpose and grace unfolded to us and enriching us with ever-increasing understanding. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Not only did he live in poverty in this world, but he gave up everything when he went to the cross for us, including himself. And yet in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him. Apart from him, all is vanity and shall come to an end in this world. The whole of God's kingdom is erected upon the great events of the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the present reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, the apostle writes to the Corinthians and says, The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And what he means, what does he mean that it's not in word? Of course, we have the gospel. It's not a reference to the word of the gospel. It's a reference to the eloquent speech with which the Corinthians tended to pride themselves. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For that after that in the wisdom of God, the world knew not God. God chose to save by the foolishness of preaching. That doesn't mean foolish preaching. That means the thing the world considers foolish, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of God is in the gospel of a crucified, risen, living, and reigning Lord. Not in the words of men, enticing words, as Paul would speak of them in 1 Corinthians 2. But in Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
the divine unfolding, the revelation of the meaning of these historical events turns the historical fulfillment of these things into the gospel of the Son of God. I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The receiving, Paul's talking about when he says, I received it as well. I received this gospel myself, he could say. The receiving he speaks of was not hearing the gospel from others. He didn't hear the gospel from Peter or Matthew or John or any of the apostles. How did he hear the gospel? Christ himself. The risen Christ that he met that day outside the gates of Damascus, the risen Christ he could no longer deny, the risen Christ before whom he bowed and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That one made the gospel known to the apostle Paul. He says in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 15, last of all, he was seen of me as a born, a one born out of due time. He can write to the Galatians, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me was not after man. I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation, the revealing, the making known by Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. You know what's very interesting? He doesn't set forth his experience here. He doesn't tell what happened on that incredible day. That he came to no longer be able to deny the one who was now made known to him. He doesn't set forth his experience. Rather, he preached Christ from the scriptures. He preached him from what we call the Old Testament. He preached him from the prophecies, the promises, the types, the figures of the prophets of the old. And he preached Christ from the word of God. I delivered unto you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. When he would go into the synagogues, he would preach Christ from the scriptures the Hebrew scriptures that they knew. He wouldn't come and say, well, believe me because I had this great experience. He always pointed to the scriptures before Agrippa, the second. The apostle Paul appears when he's on his way to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. He says to him in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 and 23, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. 
the man who just a short distance outside the gates of Jerusalem, he who died on a cruel Roman cross, he who only needed a borrowed grave for three days and nights. He's far more than a man. He is the one who in predicting his death, his resurrection, as he did, as we read in the Gospels several times, but particularly at Caesarea Philippi. He baffled Peter there, you remember? Because Peter could not reconcile something. He couldn't reconcile the awful ignominy of his death with the dignity of his person. That's why he cries, this shall not be unto thee. And he had just confessed this person to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. The most horrendous death in the annals of history. Does it call for our pity? No. It does not call for our pity. As if an innocent victim were suddenly seized against his will and forcefully made to suffer the most cruel death ever. That wouldn't make it good news. It would make it gloomy news. But it's not gloomy news. It's good news. It's gospel. Because as willingly as our Lord came into the world, and he came into this world by his own will, and as willingly as he came into this world, an act of his own, out of love, incapable of full comprehension, Christ died for our sins. And all that's meant in that horrific death in which he suffered all the pangs of hell on the cross for those for whom he was dying. The gospel that draws upon the soul that's conscious of sin becomes the most horrendous thing there is. Waited with guilt, fearing, facing God in judgment, conscious that that soul shall do so, you shall do so. The gospel calls you to trust. It doesn't call for your pity. It calls for your trust. Such a trust that brings you to abandon yourself in faith to the one who died and rose again. Why else? Why else would the Lord Jesus Christ die for sinners? It was an act of his own. 
I lay down my life, no man taketh it from me. He says. Why would he lay down his life unless he died bearing the guilt of others? Bearing the sins in his own body of others. Taking the punishment in order to reconcile the believer, the believing sinner, to God. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Gave himself for us, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. He was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The sinless one bearing the sins of others. We've said it before, what brought death into the world? What is the one thing that brought death into this world? Sin. He had none of his own. He bore ours. He had no sins of his own. In him is no sin. He died when he became sin for us, but he didn't have any of his own. He is the Holy Son of God. It was not possible under God's government that he could remain dead. It could not hold him because he had no personal sin of his own. And thus proof supreme that he was dying for others. Isn't that what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost? Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised from the dead, having loosed from the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. It was a moral impossibility for the Holy One to remain dead. The resurrection of Christ is so firmly established that if the evidence for it is rejected. It's not the problem of the evidence. It's the problem in the sin-blinded bias in the hearts of men. The churches that were established before the Gospels were written, they were all of them founded upon the preaching of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the faith in all of those Christian communities before even the Gospels were written. 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels were written. Every true preacher 
Every true gospel minister within the first 25 years of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ believed and proclaimed its truth. All of those first churches were founded upon the reality and the faith in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A dead Christ could never be the founder of a living church. And when churches become liberal, when churches deny the full divine inspiration of Scripture, when they begin denying the miracles God performs and made known herein, when they begin denying the essentials of the gospel of the Son of God, when they deny the actual bodily resurrection of Christ, they can talk about spiritual resurrections or whatever. Churches die when the living Christ is not their foundation. Had Christ not risen from the dead, what would have happened? There were false messiahs that arose. One of them was named Thutis. Had Christ not risen from the dead, the message would have been what Gamaliel said to the Jewish council about those false messiahs like Thutis. Quote, he was slain. And all as many as followed him were dispersed and came to naught. That's exactly what would have happened with Christianity had not Christ actually rose from the dead. The man used of God to pin the words we are proclaiming this morning. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is a miracle of grace that is unexplainable apart from the actual bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sudden, dramatic conversion. The fiercest of the persecutor of Christians. He hated the gospel. He hated the name of Christ. He hated Christians. He saw them as the enemies to Judaism and thought himself doing God's service and was absolutely convinced of it by the persecution of the church. But he had an encounter with the risen Christ and this one whose grace, whose love, whose mercy he never got away from astounded him from the day outside those gates of Damascus until the day that his head was severed for the preaching of that gospel. He never got over the greatness of the love that Christ had for him even considering what he did. So he considers himself the least of the apostles. That am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. There is no other explanation as to why he who went to Damascus to persecute believers, those who are in the way. No other explanation as to why rather when he got into the first synagogue, he began to preach Christ, that he is the Son of God that he is who he declared himself to be. When he went to the churches to preach the gospel, they knew it was he who persecuted them. They marveled and glorified God for his salvation. Then there are the honest unshakable convictions of those who saw the risen Christ. Consider. Many might have accused them of being mistaken, even deluded. But there's something that was absolutely certain. All who heard them knew that they believed in a risen Christ. And they would not be turned from it by threat of persecution or death. Whatever would come to them in this world that hates God and His truth and His Christ and them for confessing Him, for being bold in taking His name in witnessing to others because it wasn't simply in those first churches that it was the preacher who did the preaching all the way outside. It was the people, all of them, who witnessed to their neighbors, to their friends, wherever they went. And they would not be moved by persecution or by threats of death. All who saw them, witnessed them, knew they believed unshakably in the risen Christ. Why were they competent witnesses? Why so? Far from manufacturing a fantastic fable, which what would it do to do that? It would simply expose them to rejection, persecution, and death. Far from manufacturing a fantastic fable. They were rather slow to believe. You do realize that when you read the scriptures. They were slow to believe. They thought Christ had died. That was it. They were surprised when they saw and experienced the, wit the one who rose from the dead, the risen Christ. Early on that, that, that Sunday morning, that first day of the week. Early. 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Was she looking for a risen Christ? No. She came to anoint his dead body. She recognizes there's one in that garden tomb area with her. Thinks him to be the gardener. Sir, where have you laid him? I'll come take him away. She hears the voice. Mary. She's astounded. Rabboni. Master. He's alive. Touch me not. I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And she did go back to tell what had happened. The apostles. The apostles of Christ. Except for the rashness of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he cut off the ear of Malchus. And then got scared to death. And then denied the Lord. Did they all, as they said they would, stay with Christ to the death? No. No. They fled from him. They were scared to death of their lives. They fled at the crucifixion. And when they came to the tomb, like Peter and John, early that Sunday morning, when they came to the tomb, what did they find? They found it empty. The grave clothes neatly put in a place where the Lord had lay. Empty. They weren't coming and looking for a living Christ. They were looking for a dead Christ. And when the Lord met that evening with his apostles, he showed them his nail-scarred hands. The wounds were there. He showed them his pierced feet. He says unto them, Peace be unto you. Then we read, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. There were a couple of them. They left. Dejected, depressed. The one we trusted has died, put on a, rule, a Roman cross, cruelly crucified. Were they looking for a living Christ? No. No, they weren't looking for a living Christ. They were going away from Jerusalem. Because they thought the Lord was dead. 
And when he made himself known to them, he had to reprove them. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He would charge them, preach the gospel to the whole world. After he reproved his apostles for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Hardly anybody made it up. They weren't looking for a living Christ. Oh, then there's Thomas. You remember Thomas, of course. We read about him. Thomas the skeptic. Thomas, the one who says, well, if he's going to Jerusalem, let's go, we're going to die with him. Thomas, no doubt, when the waters began coming into the boat, and even the Lord was in the boat when they were going across the, the Sea of Galilee. Man, they might have been taking buckets and trying to get the water out of the boat. It'd be Thomas said, it's no use, we're going to perish. Thomas. I will not believe unless I see in his hands the scars and thrust my hand into his side. I see with the eyes the scars and thrust my hand into his side. Second Lord's Day evening, the Lord meets with them. Thomas is there. Thomas, reach hither. Thrust your hand into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. He was. He said, I won't believe. I will not believe unless I experience this thing for myself. And when the Lord gave him the invitation to do that, we're not told he did it. We're not told he did put his hand there. I can, with the mind's eye, see him falling down before the Lord and crying, My Lord and my God. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You do realize that the witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't have the least show of an excited imagination. Writers, they want to get people's attention. They'll embellish, right? They'll embellish things like crazy sometimes. But the witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ only told in a straightforward way what they experienced and saw. You see, they were far, far too simple and honest to perpetuate an elaborate host or fraud. Six weeks. Six weeks after the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the grave. At various times, to differing individuals, to groups, Conversations, abrupt withdrawals. In various places, Luke would write, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. 
There was 500 at once. You remember Paul wrote here? 500 at once. It would be absolutely, completely absurd to think that all of them were all at the same time simultaneously overtaken by some strange hallucination. No. No. They beheld the living Christ. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection proves without any shadow of doubt that every claim he made about himself is true. <laughs> Anybody else who preached themselves would be considered loony. Every other preacher of the gospel, if they are true, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. But the divine Son of God when he says, I am the bread, I am the door, I am the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. The Son of God who could say, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. The Son of God who could declare, I am the Son of God. And it falls from his lips and rings in the heart is absolutely true. He is the divine Son of God. He is the only sacrifice that takes away sin. Only by his cross. Only by his death and shed blood. He is the only way to the Father. No one's going to work their way there. Problem already, they're dead spiritually. And they're going to produce any merit that would be accepted of God. They're only accepted in him. He called you to forsake all. That's sticking point with most. <laughs> he called you to forsake all. He called you to take up your cross and follow him. No one else can make such a claim upon you as that. Not another in all the annals of history other than he. But you'll only do so if in your heart you truly, firmly, with full acceptance 
believe that he is risen lives and is Lord indeed. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. And if in your very heart not simply a religious thing, not simply a creedal thing, not simply an intellectual thing, but in your heart, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you won't have any trouble whatsoever believing every miracle of the Scripture. You won't have any problem believing all of the Scriptures because you'll begin to see him in the very first of the Scriptures in the book of Genesis. And throughout the Old Testament, and certainly from Matthew 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21, there's none like him. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And even in a personal blessedness for you who know him, believe him are given up to him want him above your life in this world his resurrection secures yours that's what we're going to deal with this afternoon won't be as long I noticed I got started earlier <laughs> this morning O oh, death, where is thy sting? How does it go? About a few verses. 57, 55 through 57. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord tarries, we're all going to die. Every one of us. Some sooner than others. Some more expectedly than others. But everyone who is in Christ and in whom Christ is, can look forward to a glorious resurrection from the dead. O death, where's thy sting? O grave, where's thy victory? Born again now, raised into a glorious heavens and earth that we can't imagine now. never to die forever with the Lord. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. May God bless the ministry of his own holy word. We'll take a hymn. <clears throat>
We don't know the tune. Do you know it? <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> How about we just sing 216? 216. Let's stand. <coughs> 